The following is a sermon from the church at Cherrydale in Greenville, South Carolina. To learn more, visit us at tccherrydale.com. Thank you guys for just the prayers and the support. Um, just like to just tell a little bit more about me. My name is Matt Solomon. I'm a disciple and a husband to a wonderful wife named Diamond, who's right there, and a beautiful baby girl somewhere in the back named Ada. You probably hear her every, su- every Sunday being pretty loud. There she goes. Um, <laughs> I was, uh, I'm originally from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and I ended up at TCC through meeting some guys like Brandon Simpson and Matt Rogers during my time at Furman. Uh, and after connecting with them, I saw just the Holy Spirit working in their lives. And I was like, man, I want whatever these guys have. And so that's why I ended up at TCC. I've been a member here for a few years, and I helped lead a small group. And I'm just really, truly thankful to you guys for allowing me to speak up here. I really do believe it an honor to be able to speak at the Gathering of the Saints. Um, and I would just like to start off by our mis- talking about our mission moment. And so every week, the pastors get up here, and they talk about uh, someone from any part of the world, known and unknown from different time periods, someone who's done something remarkable for Christ that really aligns with our message. And our message, our, my mission moment today is actually really perfectly aligned with what our text is going to be. I wasn't sure what I was going to speak about when they first told me to do a mission moment, but by providence last week, actually, I was made aware of a couple in our own church whose story parallels the text that we're going to read today. So Heath and Lindsay Whaley, actually, who are members here, recently had a sweet baby girl named Selah, who I think Heath is holding right now. And I was made aware that they had been caring for this couple. They had came across this couple who was in need. And ever since they, they were moved with compassion to begin assisting this couple with providing housing, providing meals, transportation. And they followed up and have since begun a friendship with that couple, which has actually led to an extension of kindness because the couple that they were caring for has reached out and started helping another couple that's in an even more certain situation. So I was able to meet both these couples and literally just praise God for the Holy Spirit who works in hearts like people like Heath and Lindsay to do things that we just wouldn't naturally do. So let me pray for us as we begin to get into the text. God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it reveals that it is a fire and it is a hammer that melts hearts of stone, that breaks hearts, that pierces us, Lord, and reveals itself to us, Lord. Lord, we just plead to you right now for mercy, right now, mercy to speak your truth articulately, mercy to receive the words that you have for us to receive, and for mercy to act, Lord, on these convictions. Praise things in your name. Amen. So today we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 10, verses uh, 25 through 42. And as we continue our sermon series highlighting our core values, so far we've discussed how we pursue Christ, how we live connected, how we serve joyfully, and how we give generously. Today our main goal is to be, is to grow in the grace of loving our neighbors. So today our family value is we love our neighbors. And as we look at the text, we're going to break it down to three different sections. We're going to look at Jesus' interaction with the lawyer, Jesus' parable, and then Jesus' encounter with Martha and Mary. And prayerfully, these verses will guide us in the act of loving our neighbors. So again, if we'll look at the first section, I'll go ahead and read Luke 10, 25 through 29. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, 
What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So again, this first section that we're looking at is Jesus' interaction with the lawyer. And these descriptions of lawyers always throw me off because I really only personally know one lawyer, and he's like one of the most humble, godly guys I know. His name's Rob. But apparently, the lawyers that Jesus encountered in his day were a little bit more like the caricature of the modern-day trickster. These guys, according to Jesus, were were scripture twisters. They knew the law inside and out, but made a law to fit their own evil desires. And we'll see how things play out in this scene. So for all you note takers and cell phone swipers in the room, there are six things that we'll note concerning the lawyer that will give us some insight. So the first thing we're going to look at is the uh, question from the lawyer. So again, the question from the lawyer. So if we look back at verse 25, we see that he says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And this question is of great importance for us. The question probably sounds familiar because it it comes up multiple times throughout the Gospels. The people in this time and culture had a strong belief in the possibility of eternal life and that it was possible to live with God eternally. The question in this instance may seem like a legit question, but if we look a little bit further and dig into it, we can see that this lawyer was trying to test Jesus. He wasn't sincere in asking this question. And actually, if you scroll up a little bit or look up in the page a little bit, uh, in verse 21, Jesus says, speaking of spiritual matters, which Toby read for us, you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. See, we quickly realize that this question is loaded with self-righteous thought. The lawyer thinks highly of himself and thinks he can do enough to inherit eternal life. But we know that this isn't the case. Paul and Silas get asked a similar question by a Philippian jailer if you look at Acts 16, 30, and 31. They get asked the same exact question, what must I do to be saved? And their response was, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. So one thing we can do to be saved is believe. Faith in Christ is our only hope for kingdom inheritance. Romans 3.28 puts it this way, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Galatians 3.24 says, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So what can we do to be saved? What can we do to inherit eternal life and be with God forever? Nothing except wholly put our hope on Christ. These truths are just as true today for us as they were back then. So the second point we'll look at, the first thing we looked at was the question from the lawyer. The next thing we'll look at is the question to the lawyer. So if we look at verse 26, Jesus, in typical rabbinical fashion, answers a question with a question. He asks in verse 26, what is written in law? See, Jesus being too wise to be trapped puts the ball back in the lawyer's court. Jesus was not unaware of the fact that the lawyer was trying to test him. Jesus knew the hearts of all men. This is attested to in John 2, 24 through 25. When Jesus goes to the temple and people begin to profess belief in him, the verse reads, But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. 
It is here that we see that you can love someone without trusting them. Jesus loved the people at the temple. He loved the people in Jerusalem. He healed them. He performed miracles to them. He taught them, yet he did not trust them. He knew that they were getting ready to turn on him. He knew that in a few days, a matter of days, they would go from praising him to hanging him up on a tree. But still, he acted in love toward them. And we see here that Jesus loved this lawyer by engaging him in conversation and showing him his need for salvation. But he did not trust the lawyer. He knew the lawyer was going to try to play him, but the lawyer did not know that Jesus can't be played. Looking at Jesus, we know that death couldn't keep him. The devil couldn't defeat him. Nothing in all creation can work against Christ. Even the most devious intentions will result in his glory somehow. The good news for us today is that if we are in Christ, then in all things we are more than conquerors as well. Meaning, the things and people that seem to be for our harm are actually for our good because they're working to increase our hope in Christ. Thinking about this made me think of a quote from the late artist formerly known as Prince. So one time he was in an interview and someone asked him, you know, Prince, if you, you're out in public and people try to mess with you, they try to play you all the time, uh, how, do you, how do you deal with that? And Prince just kind of pauses, thinks about the question. And the quote, really, that he says, I feel like can only really aptly be applied to Jesus. And he says, I can't be played. If a person tries to play me, they play themselves. And we'll see here that the lawyer doesn't know it yet. But at the end of this encounter, he will realize that he has indeed played himself. <laughs> so the third thing we'll look at concerning the lawyer is the answer to the question. So we looked at the question from the lawyer, looked at the question to the lawyer. Third thing we're going to look at is the answer to the question. And the lawyer rightly quotes the Old Testament in saying basically, love God, love others. So he did know the right answer. In fact, in Matthew 22, verses 35 through 40, Jesus gives the same exact response. He gets asked by one of the Pharisees that were trying to test him, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus answers and he says, uh, in verse 37, Again, Matthew 22, verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. Mm. So we see the problem wasn't what the lawyer knew, but what he didn't do. And this is a warning for us all. James 2 tells us faith without works is dead. And then James warns us to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. I heard a pastor tell a story once of a time that he was guest speaking at a revival uh, for several nights in a row at a church. And he noticed this one church member would always come in, jot down some notes, and leave about five minutes into the sermon. And he was like, what's going on? He asked around. He couldn't figure it out. So he finally got a chance to actually speak to this uh, member. And he asked him, how come you keep leaving partway through my sermon? And the guy simply responded, saying he didn't need to stay in here more because once he heard a truth that he wasn't putting into practice, he figured he better go do that before he heard any more truth. And so I'm not saying now that we all need to leave the room right now, but, <laughs> but I am saying that we should examine ourselves to see if what we hear every Sunday, if we actually implement those things and putting them into practice. So again, let's be not just hearers of the word, but also doers of the word. So the fourth matter for our consideration, so again, we've looked at the question from the lawyer, the question to the lawyer, and the answer of the lawyer. Now we're going to look at the command given to the lawyer. And Jesus commands him 
saying in verse 28, do this and you will live. Jesus is telling the Lord, you have the right answer. Now, if you perfectly love God all the time, 24-7, nonstop, consistently, and if you perfectly love your neighbor all the time, 24-7, nonstop, consistently, then you can inherit eternal life. You can live with God forever. And this is true for us too. But we know from scripture and experience that this is not possible. We can't perfectly, consistently, all the time, love God and love neighbor. Only one man was perfect, and it is the exchange of his perfection that gives us hope for eternal life. 1 Peter 3.18 says it this way, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death, but being made alive in the spirit. So again, the righteous, which is Christ, for the unrighteous. We need his righteousness in order to be brought to life. So even today, as we seek to grow in the practice of loving our neighbor, we are rooted in the knowledge that this practice springs from a heart that has placed all saving hope, all saving faith in Christ alone, because we can never do enough to prove ourselves worthy of salvation. And the fifth matter we'll look at will be the problem of the lawyer. So again, we've looked at the question from the lawyer, the question to the lawyer, the answer of the lawyer, the command given to the lawyer. Now we're going to look at the problem of the lawyer. And the lawyer's problem was pride. The lawyer was prideful. Verse 29, we're looking at the text, says, he was seeking to justify himself. And unfortunately, his problem is our problem. We in Christ seek to try to justify our standing in Christ by the thought that we can pay him back, that we can do enough to pay him back for the good that he's done to us. Those outside of Christ seek to justify their righteousness by seeking to do more good than bad, looking at the scales of justice. If my good outweighs my bad into my life, then I have peace. But we know from scripture that we have nothing on the good side. All or even our good works are filthy rags unless they're washed in the blood of Christ. We can't do enough. We can never do enough to pay for what Christ has done. That's why we must fully put our hope in him. So there's no room for pride. There is no room for boasting. If we look at our self-justification is even evident in the smallest matters. Think about any time someone critiques any of the smallest things like your parenting or something big like um, the way you dance or even your golf swing, whatever it is. As soon as someone critiques me, the first thing I want to do and probably the first thing you want to do is think about why they're wrong and why we're right. So we see that our pride springs up in even the smallest and the biggest matters. We justify passing by a stranded car on the road because we believe that where we need to be is more important than helping that person. We justify not giving money to the beggar on the corner because we believe our uses for the money is more important or noble than theirs. If we were to try to pinpoint why we don't love our neighbors, we would have to land on pride. We even see two contrasting examples in scripture of how pride and humility change the way we interact with others. So the first is in Matthew, Matthew 18, looking at the servant who owed a great, huge debt to a master, and that debt was forgiven him. But then, he not being humbled by the great debt that had been forgiven and canceled on his behalf, he acted harshly towards someone that owed him a small debt. And if we contrast that with the woman in Luke 7 who poured oil on Jesus' feet, it is said that she loved much because she was forgiven much. When we don't love others, we spurn God's forgiveness. We show that we haven't really received the forgiveness and the cancellation of debt that he has freely come to give. 
in 1 John 4.20 shows our relationship between love of God and love of man like this. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Again, we see the extent of our love for others shows the extent of our love for God. So now the sixth aspect we're going to look at concerning the lawyer is the parable for the lawyer. So we've seen the question of the lawyer, the question to the lawyer, the command or the answer of the lawyer, the command given to the lawyer. We've seen the problem of the lawyer. Now we'll look at the parable for the lawyer. So reading Luke 10, 30 through 35, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an end and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and evermore you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now this parable is a familiar one for us, and often we refer to it as the Good Samaritan parable. And I believe rightly and deservedly so. Jesus used the history of turmoil between the Jews and the Samaritans to really make the story stick with his audience. Samaritans and Jews were extremely prejudiced against one another. They hated one another. The parable echoes an Old Testament verse that is likely familiar to the lawyer who is an expert in the Old Testament law. So after, back in the day, the kingdom of Israel was split up into two different, the northern and southern kingdom, and the Samaritans were a result of an Assyrian takeover of the northern kingdom. And what we saw is that they were shunned by their fellow brothers. They were seen as not true Jews. They actually ended up building their own temple because they were shunned by the other Jews or the Israelites. So in 2 Chronicles 2.28, we see that the kingdom of Israel has basically gone awry, gone astray, as they do many times. They've fallen into idol worship. They've been even sacrificing children, and Ahaz the king has just led this country into just the pits. So what God does, as he does many times, is he sends judgment, and he sends it by the way of the Samaritans. And the Samaritans, they hatefully and cruelly kill and seek to enslave the Israelites. Then God sends a prophet named Oded, and he rebukes the Samaritans for dealing so hatefully toward the Judeans. So the Samaritans actually repent and set the captive Judeans free. But what we'll see as we read 2 Chronicles 28, 15 is that what they do really almost exactly parallels what the Good Samaritan in the story does. So 2 Chronicles 28, 15 says, and this is speaking of the Samaritans and how they're treating the Jews. It says, and the men who have been men mentioned by name rose and took the captives. And with spoil, they clothed all who were naked among them. They clothed them. They gave them sandals. They provided them with food and drink and anointed them. And carrying all the feeble among them on donkeys, they brought them to their kinfolk at Jericho, the city of palm trees. And then they returned to Samaria. So notice the similarities. The victim is stripped and naked, just like some of the Judeans were. The Samaritans anoint the man and put him on the donkey and carry him to Jericho, just as the earlier Samaritans had done. But the good Samaritan parable may still be more fittingly called the parable of the neighbor. 
if we look at the parable, the whole context around and the action in is all about neighboring. Going back to Matthew, or Luke, we see in verse 27 that the lawyer says, love your neighbor as yourself. In verse 20, he tells us who is, or he asks the question, who is my neighbor? In verse 36, Jesus asks, who proved to be a neighbor? So again, the whole context and action in the parable is all about neighboring. And that's why this is our chosen text for today, to speak about how we love our neighbors. So as we get into the parable itself, we're going to look at two clearly contrasted aspects of this parable. The first way is going to be the way of a stranger, and the second will be the way of a neighbor. So focusing on the first, we see that the way of the stranger is to see suffering and turn from it. In verse 31, it says, A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So again, he sees the suffering of this man, and he actively turns from it. The priest, who we would expect to do the right thing, saw someone in desperate need and left them for dead, and actively got as far out of the way as possible. He literally went out of his way for this man in the most negative sense of the word. But before we are quick to judge him, we really need to examine our own hearts and how many times we play the partisan priest in our own stories. And for us, it may be as subtle as avoiding news because we don't want to mourn with those who mourn, like Jesus tells us to do. For some of us, it may be avoiding a person or a group of people because of a relational rift. But we know that the Christian call in 2 Corinthians 5.18 says that God reconciled us to himself through the Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So how unfitting would it be for us who have been reconciled and have given the ministry of reconciliation to evade or shun opportunities to restore broken relationships? Hopefully today that if we do have any of those relationships that aren't reconciled, we will actively obey God's word and we will seek to reconcile those relationships. So the second thing that we see a little bit more subtly, so the first thing we saw as far as the way of the stranger's concern is that he sees suffering and turns from it. The next thing we'll see is that the way of the stranger is to see suffering and ignore it. So if we look at verse 32, it says, So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So we see the priest and Levite, two religious figures who are both expected to do the right thing. They both end up seeing this man half dead and they both leave him for dead without even a second thought. But we see that they both see him and also ignore him. One of my favorite texts to read through with students is actually the letter from Birmingham jail. And this text was written by Martin Luther King during the Civil Rights era. He was sitting in a jailhouse because he had just uh, got done doing a protest and everyone was thrown in jail. And he actually writes a letter to some critics. And he first off starts off by saying that I usually don't write letters to my critics, but because I believe you guys are men of goodwill, I believe that it would make sense for me to respond to you all. And we see that he's actually writing letters to religious leaders who basically have ignored him in his response, or basically ignored their responsibility to use their influence to help people that are in need. So the letter from Birmingham jail, Martin Luther King says that they saw the hate and injustice that plagued the black community, and yet they advocated for peace rather than civil disobedience. But what they called peace was really a false peace. It was just a sense of peace, a peace that said, you, you over there do your thing, I'll be over here and I'll do my thing. 
And really what they did was they passively participated in hate crimes by backing policies that basically negated the God-given rights of a whole population of people. And as I think about that text, I think that far too often, we as a church in this day are silent and inactive when it comes to alleviating the plight of those around us. We scoff at the social justice warrior who advocates seemingly unendingly for uh, putting their hope in social reform, but we are embarrassingly silent to proclaim the hope of Christ that we claim to believe in. The social justice advocate is at least consistent in speech and deed because they're saying this is what I put my hope in and I'm actually going for it, but we are inconsistent at times. So looking at these things, we can see that you could probably sum up the way of the stranger in one word. It would be hate. It is hate to see suffering and ignore it. It is hate to see suffering and turn from it. So now we'll look at the way of a neighbor. So again, this is what we're here to learn, how to be good neighbors, because this is what we do as a church. We love our neighbors. So the, verse, the, the first verse actually serves as the thesis for the way of a neighbor, which is Luke 10.33. So Luke 10.33 says, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And compassion is the word that really sticks out to me here. And we look at the life of Jesus, we see that often Jesus was moved with compassion. In scripture, we see Matthew 20, verse 34, that he was moved with compassion toward the blind, and he gave them sight. In Matthew 9, 36, we see that he was moved with compassion toward a large crowd without a shepherd, and he sent out laborers. In Mark 1:41, we see that he was moved with compassion toward a leper, and he reached out his hand. In Matthew 14, 14, we see that he was moved with compassion toward another crowd, and he healed them. In Matthew 18, 27, we see that he was moved with compassion toward a mother who was grieving a dying a dead, dead son, and he resurrected her son. Often, Jesus was moved with compassion. And Jesus is the one man of compassion, and thank God that he, that same compassion that he extended to those people, that he's also extended to us today for all those who believe on him for salvation. So as we look at the rest of the story, these are going to serve for our main points. So again, looking at the way of the neighbor, the first way of the neighbor is to act for the good of others. So that's what a neighbor does. A neighbor acts for the good of others. In Luke, in the first half, or the first half of uh, verse 34, we'll see, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. So again, he went to the man. He saw the suffering. He acted by going to the man. In 1 Timothy 1.15, we actually see Tim, uh, a comment on this and how Jesus acts and comes to us. And it says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So again, he came into the world to save sinners. He saw us in our sin, and what did he decide to do? He decided to come to us to save us. And then we also see in Acts 10, 38, Jesus Nazareth was anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who are oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So again, he comes, he went to us, and we see that we, if we are to be like Jesus, are to act for the physical and spiritual good of others as well. So the next way of a neighbor that we'll see is that a neighbor sacrifices willingly. So again, we saw that neighbor, the way of the neighbor is to act for the good of others, but also that the way of the neighbor is to sacrifice willingly. 
So the second half of verse 34 informs us on that when it says, then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. We see that the Samaritan, he sacrificed his time, his energy, his effort by walking on foot so that the wounded man could get to where he needed to be. He put him up in an in a inn. He also remained with him and he tended to his wounds. I'm reminded of Jesus' own words where he says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. And we see that the neighbor in this story serves the man. He's not seeking any service, and he lays down wherever he needed to be that day, whatever was going on in his life. He put it all on hold so that he could love this man that was wounded and hurting. Jesus himself does this to the highest degree, and he is calling us to sacrifice our lives also in incremental ways. So the next thing we see is that the way that the neighbor commits to seeing other thrive, others thrive. So again, we saw that the way the neighbor acts for the good of others, the way the neighbor sacrifices willingly, and also the way the neighbor also commits to seeing others thrive. So in Luke 10, verse 35, it says, the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. So again, he put all his plans on hold, but not just that, he also gave to this man. He didn't just give him a moment of his time. He didn't give him a pat on the back. He didn't give him some well wishes, but he gave him his time and he gave money. He was committed to seeing this man restored to wholeness. James 2.15 through 16 kind of helps us in understanding what it looks like to give in this kind of way. And it says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you say to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? We see here that words are meaningless without intent and also to have follow through. So again, we are to give of ourselves and commit to seeing other people thrive, to be intentional to do those things. The last way of the neighbor that we see is that a neighbor gives at his own cost. So again, we see that neighbors act for the good of others. They sacrifice willingly. They commit to seeing others thrive, others thrive, and they also give at their own cost. And verse 35, the second half says, take care of him, and ever more, whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So this man wasn't concerned about how much money he was going to run up on the vending machine or or ordering too many towels. He said, whatever he spends, don't worry, I got it. And we too are called to give to the detriment of ourselves and to the benefit of others. I think you could argue that the Bible only commends irresponsible spending when it's for the sake of kingdom, for the kingdom advancement. I think that all the monetary prudence of the Proverbs is really fulfilled in scenes like the rich young man who is told to sell everything he has and give to the poor, or the widow that's commended for giving up her last. And doesn't it make sense that if we are to love others as ourselves, that we should spend just the same amount of time praying for others, giving to others, and thinking through the problems of others as we do for ourselves? Think about this. If by all measurable accounts, our love is focused on us and ours, me and mine, then how can we truly say that we love our neighbors? My wife and I have recently tried to implement this lately. We have quickly realized that God can be taken at his word. He will provide. The Boyer family who is serving in Ireland is probably one of the best real life examples that I've seen of this. Michael and Natalie, 
they are people who literally try to outgive God. They will give to anybody who has any need at any time. And they will always watch as, joyfully as God continues to provide for their own needs time and time again. Martha and I give support to them because it is a joy to be connected to people like that who give for love's sake. Thinking about love, there's a very helpful definition uh, by Vodi Bakum that defines, and he defines love as this. He says, biblical love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. So again, biblical love is an act of the will accompanied by an emotion, but not led by it, but it leads to action on behalf of its object. The neighbor in the story acted in goodwill toward the man because of the great compassion that he was moved with toward the man. The way of the neighbor can be summed up as love. So looking at the conclusion of the conversation with the lawyer, we see that Jesus turns the question from who is my neighbor to who can I be a neighbor to. Jesus completely flips the script. He doesn't give the man a way out. He, the, man, the lawyer in the parable is looking for a narrow definition of what a neighbor is so that he can say, check it off and say, yep, I do that, I do that. But God is saying that anyone who is in any kind of need who crosses our path, that person is who we are called to care for and be a neighbor to. And that's why Paul in Romans 13, 8 says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So again, we're to owe no one anything except to love one another. So now briefly we'll look at Jesus' interaction with Martha and Mary. And this will kind of help us to see exactly how we can love our neighbor. So I'll read Luke 10 verses 38 through 42. Jesus' interaction with Martha and Mary. This will be our third section. So as they were on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Mary welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, or sorry, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So we'll get three quick uh, applications or takeaways from here. And the first is that we are to prioritize abiding. So again, we are to prioritize abiding. So looking at uh, verses 39 and 40, it says, She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. I'm convinced that one of our most respectable sins is probably worldliness, being so caught up and fixed in the happenings and the doings of the world. Sometimes I think it's even worn as a badge of honor, and it kind of takes a form in phrases like, I had such a hectic week, or I just have so much going on, or I'm so busy. But all the while, I think we see that we still find time to abide. We abide in social media. We abide in sports games. We abide in a whole host of other things. But we forget the main thing is to abide in Jesus. And that's why sometimes we're so spiritually weak. It's because we spend so much time abiding in the things of the world, but not in things of Christ. So the second takeaway that we get from this interaction with Martha and Mary is a caution against comparison. So again, a caution against comparison. If you look at Luke 10, 40 and 41, it says, And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? 
Tell her then to help me. But Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. We see here that Martha was self-righteously comparing her actions to her sister's. And I see my heart all in this one. So often, wherever I think I am doing the right things, I immediately begin to criticize and think about, man, is this person doing enough? Because I'm doing this. Is this person doing enough? Because, you know, I feel like I'm really, really killing it right now. And that's, that really, that self-comparison really isn't beneficial for me or for the other person. Honestly, it's that same self-comparison that led Cain to murder his brother Adam when his sacrifice didn't get accepted by God. He compared himself to his brother or not Adam, sorry, Cain and Abel, he compared himself to his brother and he was like, man, God, you didn't accept me, but you accepted my brother. And that jealousy, that self-comparison is what led him to kill his own brother. Proverbs 14.30 says this, a peaceful heart leads to a healthy body. Jealousy is like cancer in the bones. So again, jealousy is like cancer in the bones. Galatians 6.4 says this, but each one tests his own works. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbors. So here we just see that we need to humbly walk in the good works that God has set before us. And our final takeaway with this interaction between uh, Martha and Mary and Jesus, we see in Luke 10, 42. He says, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And the takeaway from that is that abiding leads to fruitful activity. If we are abiding, that will lead to fruitful activity. So we see here that doing the one necessary thing of sitting at Jesus' feet is the most valuable thing that we can do if we want to fulfill the acts of love. We can do so much without Jesus. If we want to be fruitful, we can't do anything unless we do sit at Jesus' feet. In Matthew 7, we see an account of people who are saying, Lord, Lord, we did so many things in your name. We testified, we prophesied, we healed people, we cast out demons. And God's response to them is very uh, clear. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Sorry. So we see that the knowing, the knowing of Jesus is the most important thing here. Here we see that good work is not good just because it has been good or that because it's been done. It is good because it was done in relationship with Christ. And we must know him. We must come after him. We must learn after him. And the love will flow. So what do the results of this kind of abiding look like? There's no need to look any further than some of the people in the room around you. When I look out in the room, even right now, I see a man who is always determined to stop for people on the side of the road because he hopes to care for their physical and spiritual needs. I see a couple who has decided to be the minority and live in the neglected and undercared for neighborhood to, for the sake of seeing revitalization and revival. I see a, a, who else? All right, there we go. I see a retired couple who have determined in their retirement with their extra time to love their neighbors, to love, to give generously, to care for orphans in Haiti, and to help struggling people. I see a single mother who opens up her home on a regular basis and serves tirelessly. There are people right now that are doing the good work of loving their neighbors, and they are people that we're to look up to. My wife and I have lived up in our current neighborhood for the past two years, and we are known and know several of our neighbors. We have proclaimed the gospel and prayed for several of our neighbors. We've also uh, hosted meals, dropped off baked goods, done a host of things for our neighbors. And I say these things not to boast, but really just to put Christ's work on display. Because six years ago, I lived in this exact same neighborhood. 
and I knew only one neighbor by name. And I spent zero time seeking out others. I showed zero to little hospitality. And this lifestyle did not concern me. And I actually was sitting under biblical teaching. I was at the same church. But still, I think that this is a lesson for us all. I pray today that you guys, like me, wouldn't squander six years of your life, that you'd repent today. And if you have, that you would show, not show contempt for God by not showing love for your neighbor. I just pray that you'd act now, that you'd pray, think, through what can you do or stop doing because of the truth that was presented here. Think about the Father sent, the Son came, the Holy Spirit dwells so that we'll walk in the good works that were prepared for us. So what will you do? I'll just leave us with this uh, one verse from Hebrews 12. And it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So again, guys, what will we do? Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the truth of your scripture. We thank you first and foremost for your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, who saw us in a desperate and dying state, and he decided to do something about it. He decided to act. Lord God, I pray that right now that if anyone here is in that state of death and a state of condemnation, Lord, that they would know that your grace is freely given to all those who would have come after you. I pray for us that are currently in you, Lord. I pray that we would repent and seek to love our neighbors more, that we would receive the grace that you've given us, Lord, that we would abide in you, and that abiding will give us the power and the strength to do what you have told us to do, Lord. So, Lord, I pray that we would do this and live. In the name we pray. Amen. To learn more, visit us at tccherrydale.com.